Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, part of the Talent 409 Network. We are helping people discover their talent altitude. On this pod, listeners can learn about leadership and other related attributes from former and current successful business people, coaches, and athletes. Each episode will bring you conversations with people that display the seven pillars of dynamic leadership. Someone who possesses those seven pillars has courage, drive and accountability, integrity, grit, great communication skills, a high level of emotional intelligence, and they can motivate others. We will also talk with individuals that use their athletic and competitive experiences to lead in life, in business, community, or in their family. For more information on the podcast or Talent 409, please visit talent409.com. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, all at Talent 409, and connect with me on Twitter, at Colin Talent 409. The Dynamic Leaders Facebook group is also a great way to interact. Type in Dynamic Leaders in your search bar and ask for an invitation to this exclusive group full of leading professionals. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. If you have time, please take a minute and on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review. Leaving a review really does help grow the show and helps other people find us, and we really appreciate each and every review. Welcome to May, everybody. It is the first podcast episode of the month, and we are doing a special feature throughout the month of May, Teachers and Coaches Appreciation Month, and we're going to be talking to these folks and learning more about what their job entails, how they impact student-athletes in today's world, the type of work that they're doing, the great things they're doing. It's been really fun for me to have these conversations with these coaches and with these teachers and the people that are making an impact on today's future leaders. So I hope you enjoy the following episode, and I hope you'll continue to listen to the rest of the episodes throughout the month of May for Appreciation Month. But today's guest is Matt Ginepro. Matt is the women's volleyball head coach at Appalachian State University. He's also a former volleyball player himself. We talk about what it's like to actually coach at the collegiate level, the challenges, the fun, the future. Matt actually just got extended recently at App State, three-year extension, so congrats to him. But before we dive into the conversation here, let's sit back, relax, get comfortable, A new month means a new song and a new band. Let's kick it off with Blink-182. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is Matt Ginepro. Matt, thanks so much for joining the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you coming on. I know uh, coaching life can be crazy busy and so many different things with coaching, recruiting, building those relationships, all things we're going to talk about during the course of our conversation today. But before we get too far ahead, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our listener audience and tell everybody who are you. Sure. So in a nutshell, 
been the head coach at Appalachian State Volleyball for the past 12 seasons. I came originally from Long Island, New York, uh, and have been in the Southeast since I went to Virginia Tech. I was a student at Virginia Tech. I told my folks that I was leaving home. I was leaving Long Island. I wanted to experience something completely different in the college realm and uh, really had no plans on heading back up there. So I went pretty much as far as I thought I could and <laughs> went 12 hours south to a tiny little town in southwest Virginia and uh, went to Virginia Tech. I ended up actually spending 11 years of my life there. Uh, not only did I get my undergrad from tech in psychology, but I then went and got my master's in counseling and college student development from Radford University, which is 10 or 15 minutes away from Virginia Tech. Uh, and then I ended up starting my coaching career. Um, I was actually going to start off getting a job in college administration. That was what my master's degree was in. It was right about the time where colleges were really focusing on the transition between high school and college. Uh, so the jump from when I went and orientation being show up on campus, here's your schedule, now go home to what the programs are now. Uh, colleges realize that the transition between high school and college was, was just something they needed to focus on to make it better for the students. I like to say that I academically redshirted my freshman year at Virginia Tech because I ended up having way too much fun when I was a freshman. So I personally <laughs> experienced everything that a college freshman goes through. Um, I didn't have a bad situation. I just had way too much fun and thought I could cruise through college like I cruised through high school because high school really wasn't that much of a challenge for me. And you learn pretty quickly that you can't do that. So I ended up focusing on that in, uh, with my master's degree, uh, with a counselor's education degree, with a concentration in college student development. And I was often, often ready to go getting a job in like new student programs or first year experience programs. And the assistant position at Virginia Tech opened up and I had been a student assistant the entire time I was there uh, when I was playing, started off as a practice player for the women's team from playing on the men's team. And and then from there, uh, the second assistant position opened up at Virginia Tech. I turned from a graduate assistant to a full-time spot, and the head coach said that she wanted me for that spot. And what I think is funny is that it was my wife, Roxanne, who looked at me and said, I think you should take that coaching gig because I think you'll love doing it every single day, even though that was for significantly less money than some of the jobs that I was interviewing for uh, in college administration. But no, it was the best decision I made. And I actually ended up coaching at Virginia Tech for four years. From there, I went from Virginia Tech to Ole Miss. And I was planning on being at Ole Miss for a good couple of years just to be in the SEC at a bigger program, bigger budget. And I was there for eight months because that spring, I got hired over the summer, coached there for the 2000 season. And then that spring, while I was out recruiting, the University of Virginia coach, who's a good friend of mine, came up to me and said that she needed an assistant. And I pretty much looked at her and said, well, when do you want me to come? Because it brought my wife back to Virginia. She's from there. Melissa Shelton, who was the head coach at the time at UVA, was one of my best friends. And I knew that we would just hit the ground running. And so I took the UVA job, much to the chagrin of all of my Virginia Tech uh, friends, because that was the enemy. And then I ended up coaching at UVA for six years. Had a blast. That university is a pretty special place. I was really excited to watch them win the national championship in basketball. Again, as a Virginia Tech grad, I'm saying that. But from there, the coach who was here was leaving to go for another job. And he is a friend of mine. And he called me and said, hey, I'm leaving App State. I would love to pass your name on to the AD if you're interested. 
And I said, sure. I, I'd never been to Boone. I'd never been to App State. I just know that that coach had done a really good job and loved every minute that he was down here. And he passed the name on to the AD, and I got brought down for an interview. And that was pretty much it. You know, as I was driving into town, it was exactly like my college experience. It was a small college town in the mountains. And then when I was on the interview for those two or three days, two days, just meeting everybody here, I knew this was going to be a place that I wanted to be. And my daughter was nine at the time. My son was six. And my wife looked at me and said, okay, if we're going to move our kids, it better be a place where you're going to want to stay. And lo and behold, I've been here for 12 years. So that's kind of the, the who am I. Yeah, that's awesome. And obviously there's so much to unpack there. And interestingly enough, I, I usually start talking about the athletic experiences that our guests have. And I certainly want to talk about that because I'm sure it leads to a lot of what you're doing today and connects in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that you mentioned was, and the reason that this is interesting to me is because I was kind of like this type of student when I was in high school and I got to college, I just kind of coasted through high school. Like once, once I knew, once I knew what I needed to do to get to the next level and I didn't need to do anything more than that, I was just on cruise control, enjoying my time. And I'm curious from your perspective, how that affected you when you got to college. Like if you can tell us in a little bit more detail, like obviously it probably was a huge learning experience and one of those, you know, oh crap moments for lack of a better phrase, but really big oh crap moment. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell, tell us about that. Yeah. So I went to school 12 hours away and it wasn't like I was, oh my God, I'm away from home. This is going to be the best thing ever. I mean, I had a blast at home too. I had parents that raised a really independent kid and they let me do my own thing and you know held me accountable, but also knew, you know, it, it, it's part of growing up. And as long as I was safe, like there was a standing rule in my house that if we ever needed anything, if it were two, three o'clock in the morning, just call. They might be mad at that moment in time and we might have a conversation the next day, but they'd rather everybody like me and all my friends be safe than do something stupid. So that's a standing rule in my house. I actually say it to my players too. You know, hey, I'd rather be angry at you for a short bit than sad because something happened. But I went to college and... I did. I cruised through high school. I remember writing papers in between classes and getting A's on them. And, you know, just school came easy to me uh, so that when I went to tech, I thought I could do the same thing. And I remember my f f first semester freshman year, I had a chemistry test uh, on like a Wednesday or whatever and opening up the syllabus and looking on what the test was going to be on so I could just crank out the studying the night before. And it was on like 13 chapters worth of work. I clearly failed that test because there was no way I was going to study 13 hour, 13 chapters a few hours before the test. And, you know, at the end of my freshman year, you know, got the letter from Virginia Tech to kindly improve my grades or you would not be a student anymore and got my act together and went back home. And the reason why I say I academically redshirted my freshman year is because I did the five year plan at Tech because I then I started my four year college experience. So my second year. I got three fives and above the rest of the time because I had to shift my work ethic. You know, it was one of those things where what you've done in the past may have worked for you then and may have worked in that environment, but it's not going to work in this environment. So you've got to adjust to it. So I maximized my time. I 
got much better time management. I study throughout the week. I maximize my hours between classes. So basically all of the things that I try to teach our players here to do, I did back in 89 during my sophomore year of just, you can't just cram things in anymore. And uh, I had a much better college experience because of it, because I wasn't stressed out about tests or projects or anything like that. So yeah, you learn pretty quick. And I had parents again that looked at me and went, well, if you don't graduate from Virginia Tech, you don't graduate from Virginia Tech. We're only going to pay for something that you're going to be successful in. And if you're not going to be successful in it, then you don't get to go. So that was another lesson learned because I really liked Virginia Tech. And I was lucky that two of my best friends from home, so two other people from Long Island and guys that I grew up with ended up going to Tech too. So even though I was 12 hours away, I was with two of my best friends. And I looked and I said, okay, then I've got to change my experience because I most certainly want to graduate from Virginia Tech and I don't want this experience to end because I'm being an idiot. <laughs> yeah, you obviously had a lot of motivation to turn things yeah. around. Not wanting to move back home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's good motivation for sure. <laughs> I think that was a big thing for me too. Once I got to college, I was like, okay, I don't want to leave here. So let's right. let's right. turn it around. So. Cool. Well, let's flip back. We're going to come to college in just a couple minutes here, but I want to uh, go back to just your overall athletic experiences and obviously yeah. played volleyball in college. Did you play any other sports growing up? Well, I'm from Long Island, so you get a lacrosse stick put in your hand pretty early on. You know, it's bigger than football up there. So I, I played lacrosse from middle school age on smattering of soccer growing up, played travel soccer you know, and clearly Little League, as most boys do, but uh, played travel soccer more uh, seriously than Little League. And, but really, it was more lacrosse. Volleyball, boys volleyball, did not exist uh, in Long Island back in the 80s. So I was lucky enough that the high school coach for the girls' team back then was one of the best coaches in New York, uh, in the state of New York. And she's actually a reason I'm a coach. And... When you're 15, 16 years old and you think the girls' volleyball team have cute players on them, you want to hang out around the girls' volleyball team as much as possible. So I kind of would be at practices, and then I started picking up the game. And I was a average, at best, lacrosse player. But for some reason, my brain just understood volleyball. Uh, I got the game. I got the movements. I got the strategy of it. And the coach at the time realized that. And she started kind of pulling me into more the coaching aspect of it and understanding the game. And then growing up on an island, we were 10 minutes from the beach. So we would play after school on the weekends on the beach all the time, me and all my friends. And she started up a after school kind of boys class. And then she actually fought my junior year in high school. She actually fought, I guess it would be the school districts of Long Island to start boys volleyball because she found that there were like five or six other high schools that had guys just like us that were playing after school. And she fought to actually start up boys volleyball in Long Island. So it started up in, I guess that would be 86, 87. And then by my senior year, it was a full fledged sport on Long Island with a conference schedule and a, a conference channel, Long Island champion. And then from there, when I went to tech, me and my two buddies who were also playing high school ball together, we're in a gym just screwing around with the volleyball one day and about 90 people walked in and it was the Virginia Tech Volleyball Club. And it was an extramural club that completely evolved into what's now considered men's club volleyball at the college level. So back then was kind of the beginnings of 
what is now a, a huge thing because, and I love Title IX, don't get me wrong, it's the reason my kids have scholarships, it's the reason why I have a job, but I think there are only 20 or so Division I volleyball, men's volleyball programs, and there are 336 Division I women's volleyball programs. So there's a huge disparity in the number of volleyball programs out there. So it's really, really hard to play at the NCAA level, whether it's Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three in men's volleyball, because there's just not that many programs out there. I think in total, we might be across the three divisions, 100 or so, maybe. And there's probably over 1,000 Division One, two and three women's programs. So men's club volleyball at the college level has exploded. So as I was going through my years at Tech, we developed into having a conference and having a regional championship. And then there was national championships. And now those national championships are huge. They take over convention centers and you have clubs from all around the country that compete. And so I feel like we've played a pretty high level game of volleyball just without coaches and without scholarships and things like that. But we had everything else. We had a conference schedule. We had rivals. We had Virginia Tech extramural department was really good to us and we were given a budget where we could travel so we would travel across the country and and play in these tournaments and and now it's grown even more so i'm excited to be a a, you know kind of a grandfather of all of that (laughs) but i had a great athletic experience because i got to play pretty high level ball you know without being recruited or offered a scholarship or anything like that and i think that evolved into my coaching because then the head coach at Virginia Tech kind of grabbed a few of us to be male practice players for her team. And then that's how I evolved into coaching from there. Yeah. So all the stars align for you to be able to continue to play volleyball, even at the collegiate level, you have this great experience. And then you talked about how, when you went for your master's, part of it was the experience that you had in high school coming into college and wanting to do that type of work. But obviously coaching is, at the center of what you do now. And it even seems like in college, there was an inkling of, hey, maybe this is something that I want to do long term. Yeah, I mean, it was really when it was Stephanie Hallbecker was the head coach at Virginia Tech. And when she would bring us in as practice players, I remember her pulling me aside one practice and saying, hey, you're a good setter. Do you think you can work with our setters? Because we don't really have a setters coach on the staff. And I said, sure. Now, the back of my brain is like, you know, what in the world do I say? I don't, I know how to play. I don't know if I know how to coach. Really, what I boiled down to is I would just regurgitate everything that my high school coach told me. Uh, again, she's the reason why I'm a coach, just to, to have the, the fortune that she started up boys volleyball by fighting for it, but then also to have her teach us the way she taught us. She's the so everything that came out of my mouth in the beginning was, okay, what did Coach Stouter tell me? I'm just going to regurgitate everything. And it was less the technical stuff. Like I, One of the things that sticks in my head is that she never let us say the word can't. If we ever, we were never punished for anything in high school. We were never made to run sprints. We were never, unless we said the word can't. Like If I ever said, I can't do that. It would be Matt wall-to-wall, which was run sprint from wall-to-wall in the gym. And then I'd come back to her and she'd go, you can't say that word. You have to change it to you just haven't learned yet. And that is completely stuck in my brain. I even say it every time our players, now it just comes out because it was something that was drilled in my head when I was 15, 16 years old, that here is this coach telling me to 
be quiet every time I said the word can't and change it to you haven't learned yet. Uh, and that's how I started. It was just, okay, hey, don't say you can't do this. Just tell yourself that you haven't learned how to do it yet and that it's my job to teach you how. Yeah, I love that philosophy. Actually, that's <laughs> funny enough. It's something I try to tell my wife uh, more often than not is to get that word out of her vocab and have a little right. bit more of a positive spin on it. But right. I think it's really helpful the way that you put it for everybody. And so you do ultimately obviously go down the coaching path and right. your line to getting this job at App State, as you mentioned when you were doing your intro, you had to make a couple different stops. You had to right. make a couple different sacrifices, not only for yourself, but eventually for your wife and for the family that you started together. What do you think now, being in the position you are, how important was you? Was it for you to build that foundation, not only of the coaching experience, but to also go through those life experiences before you had your first head coaching job? Right. Uh, that's a great question. I think probably the biggest thing or two of the biggest things that I did in my coaching career was one, you have to realize that in coaching, especially in college coaching, your time, the length of how long you'll be at a place is completely dependent on winning and losing. However, you can't focus on that or you'll drive yourself crazy. But you have to know in the back of your head that if I make a move, especially as you said, when I started having a family. So when we moved from Virginia Tech to Ole Miss, my daughter was three. And the decisions that I made to become a new co new assistant coach here or a new assistant coach at UVA, I couldn't just make them myself, right? Which I would hope nobody does, but I think we all know examples of people that do. And I had to make a decision. Okay, I uprooted my family. Now, my wife is from Blacksburg too so where virginia tech is so i moved my wife when she was 30 years old for the first time ever away from her family to go to Ole miss and then eight months later i'm walking into our house going hey the virginia job has opened up i know we just got here i know i told you that i wanted to be here like two or three years and, and be in the sec but i really think this is a good situation and my wife was all for it because it moved her closer to her family and it moved us back to Virginia. But she also looked at me and said, if we go to UVA, it better be for a while. And I could believe because she was pregnant with my son at the time. And I told her it's going to be for as long as I can make it happen. And if you look back at our record, my first two years at Virginia were two losing seasons. So those two years, I was panicked because I had just uprooted my family twice and here we are having two losing seasons. But what I did was, okay, I want to stay here though. I wasn't going to look for anything else. I wasn't going to try to bail. I loved Charlottesville. I loved Virginia. I loved who I was working with, but we really had to get better. And so I was on the phone with as many people as I could, just asking them how they did things. Cause I was still a relatively new assistant coach at the time. And I was also put more in a recruiting coordinator role, which was basically all the recruiting was put on me, which I loved. I loved it, but I was still kind of green at it. So I remember having conversation after conversation with people I considered to be really good recruiters of, hey, what do I need to do? How do you do this? How do I do that? And then thankfully, for the next four years, we had a bunch of 21 seasons and we did really, really well. The big part of that was in the back of my head knowing I have to do this not only to be good at my job, but I have to do this for my family because I don't want to keep moving unfortunately coaching is a it's a kind of a nomad 
profession. You see people that have been at 10, 12 places, and I've been lucky enough that I haven't been. And then that goes into my second part. When I started into coaching, I never had the mentality of, I have to be a head coach by this time. I never had that mentality. I still say to this day, I could still be at UVA as the assistant coach because I was having a blast and it was a great place to work and I didn't ever need to be a head coach. I run into a bunch of young and they're typically males, you know, out there recruiting and they already have this timeline in their head of I'm going to be a head coach by this time. And I, I want to tell them, you don't dictate that. You don't get to choose that. You might get lucky enough and find out about it, but understand that the jump from assistant coach to head coach is such a huge leap. Your head's going to be spinning. So you might want to take your time. I was 11 years as an assistant coach before I became a head coach. And I still had no idea what I was doing (laughs) when I got to be a head coach in 2007, when I got here to app, you know, thankfully I inherited a really good program that wasn't a case where I was taking over a program where the coach had gotten fired and I had to rebuild everything. You know, thankfully I stepped into a really good situation here and we had a good year, but I think those two things that the decisions that I made throughout my career, not only affected me, but affected three other people. And that if I really like the place, stay there for as long as possible until you get a better opportunity. And then also I never felt that I had to be a head coach. I wasn't a head coach until I was 37 years old and I'm out there recruiting and I'm listening to like 25 year olds saying, they want to be a head coach. And I just, trust me, take your time because there's this, the step up to being a head coach is so different than being an assistant coach. Being an assistant coach is really, really easy and enjoy it <laughs> before you decide <laughs> to sit in that big chair. Can you tell us and maybe not give us away all the secrets, I guess, right. but can you tell us what some of the big differences are? Cause you hear that all the time in any right. sport about how different it is being an assistant and moving into the head coach or the manager position. What do you think are yeah. some of the bigger things that you learned, whether they were right away or just over the course of your time now as a head coach? Right. Nobody but head coaches understand how much you have to fight for your program, wherever you are whether it's high school or college or you're at a P5 program or at a low mid-major, nobody understands how much you have to fight for your program. And unless you're ready for that, unless you're ready to have those hard conversations and understand that you have to have those hard conversations with the person who decides whether or not you get to stay. As an assistant coach, you might kind of have an inkling from your head coach about that. But until you have to sit in that office and have those conversations of you want us to be good, but we don't have certain things. And, you know, because and our AD here and I have a great relationship. And I think part of it is because we have those open conversations. I remember having a conversation with him about, you know, what is your plan? for our program. And he kind of looked at me and went, huh, that's a really good question. In the grand scheme of things, unless you're at a Nebraska or a Penn State or, you know, a a top volleyball program out there across the board, and this is a complete utter overgeneralization, a lot of ADs out there know football and they know men's basketball and probably know women's basketball. And then after that, there's a huge drop-off of the understanding of all the other sports. 
and a good friend of mine who's the head coach at Wisconsin gave a presentation at our convention last year where he explained it's our jobs as coaches to educate our administrators on our sport. It's fun because he and I have known each other forever. And it, it, it was just that one sentence right there clicked in my brain of, my God, I can't complain about things if they don't know. And so my next conversation when I get back into town is, hey, do you have an hour so I can explain to you just volleyball in general, just the lay of the land? And that conversation was the best thing ever because a lot of it was, oh, wow, I didn't, I had no clue. I had, like where the strong recruits are and where the best high schools are, where the best club teams are. And they're not in the Southeast. And we're an isolated campus. We're a beautiful campus, but we're an isolated campus and we're two hours from an airport. And, you know, and we have two teams from the state of Texas in our conference. And Texas is one of the best states in, in volleyball. And it was about an hour long conversation. All of a sudden you realize that now they get it. And that's probably the biggest difference. It, everybody thinks that it's just the hours in the gym. And it, when you become a head coach, it's so much less about the hours in the gym. It's paperwork, which I can't stand because uh, I'm not an organized person at all. Uh, it's the amount of fight that you have to have uh, to keep your program afloat. And that's even if you're at a really good school like I am. We have a lot to help us be successful, but I'm always fighting for something. You know, whether it's expanding our locker room, which we did last year, or whether it's uh, some more money so we can travel better or more money so we can fuel our kids better. There's always something that you have to fight for. And I think as an assistant coach, you just don't you don't realize how much there is. And, that, and then it's also about it's more about relationships. It's so much less about the coaching. Uh, so for me, it's donor relationships and relationships with our administration and relationships with the other coaches in the league and relationships with people who take care of our facilities. And you spend so much more time on those things than planning a practice, which, you know, an assistant coach can do. That's the biggest difference. I think, and tell me if this is fair or not, but I think probably the two biggest things that you just walked us through was one, the relationship building. So not only with your team, the players, your coaches, but also the athletic director, administrators, and building that relationship, especially if there's a lack of understanding from one side or the other. Right. And then the other part seems like deflecting, I guess. Uh, Just, (laughs) you know, not, it's, it's, it's almost taking that burden because you don't, you don't want your players to know that, right. Or even maybe your assistant coaches to know that, you're fighting these battles for these, like they have enough things to worry about. And so it's almost like you take that pressure off. And I see that a lot in the corporate world too, throughout my experiences doing that. It's a very similar type thing where some people don't like to see it this way, but if you look at a org chart in the coaching world, a head coach is really like a middle manager where, you know, so it's, yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where, a lot of people see the head coach and they're like, well, they have the decision to do this. They have the decision. Yeah. Well, not really. <laughs> I don't get to decide the money, right? That's, right. That's, I get to decide what to do with the money. And middle manager is a perfect example. I get to decide what to do with the budget that I get. But if I'm being compared to this other mid-major program and they're four times what we have, I don't get to make the decision to give us 
what that other program had. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's where I go with the, with the fight. And that's a, it's a bad word. It's just, you always have to fight for your program if you want to keep it getting better. So my buddy at Wisconsin talked about this. He called it the conveyor belt theory, where everybody who goes to the grocery store focuses on what's going through the scanner, right? So you've got your yogurts and your milk, right? But nobody really pays attention to what's on the conveyor belt as it's coming up. And eventually that empties. Well, his thing was you always have to have something on that conveyor belt. So when you're dealing with your administration and you're trying to make your program better, there always has to be something ready to go through the scanner. Now, that could be tomorrow or it could be 10 years from now. But there always has to be something on that conveyor belt that you're talking about that eventually will go through the scanner to make your program better. So then I learned, okay, now it's time to break out the notebook and start writing everything that I think we need. And then, okay, here are the short-term things. Can we get these things immediately? Can we get these things within the next two or three years? Can we talk about these things for five plus years later? But there always has to be those conversations or you might get forgotten about. Yeah, I love that conveyor belt example. I think that's really practical and super easy to understand as well. Are you an all or nothing person? Do you find you're either on or off the health and fitness wagon? Sweat with Stods has a program that helps you turn habits and fitness into a lifestyle. Healthy Habits is a program designed to help you make lasting, incremental changes in your life that culminate into six new healthy habits. No working out required. With a few intentional minutes every day, you can have a huge impact on your health and life. This program focuses on water intake, steps per day, veggie intake, meditation, gratitude, and stretching six habits that will help you look and feel your best and my listeners get a discount head to sweatwithstods.com and enter the code dynamic at checkout for ten dollars off this program i've done this program and one of the best things that came from it for me was to incorporate stretching and meditation into my daily routine it does work it's not an overnight process but it's easy it's incremental and you should really give it a try. And now back to the pod. The first time you and I chatted, we talked about how you pretty much made a conscious effort. And you've already alluded to this a little bit earlier in the conversation today. But you talked about how you made a conscious effort to focus more on the culture of your team versus the X's and O's. Can you talk to me and tell the audience a little bit more about what that actually means? Yeah, uh, sure. So across over 25 years of coaching experience, collegiate coaching experience now, and there has been a huge shift, and I think it's good. And I think part of it is uh, generational. We're coaching a completely different generation of kid now. And again, it's not a negative. It's that they're different. Over the last couple of years, I realized you can get more out of players if you have stronger relationships with them. So 25 plus years ago, when I was an assistant at Virginia Tech, we had relationships with the kids and especially me as an assistant coach, right? Because as you move up the totem pole, you get further away from the players, but nowhere near the level that we do now. It was, let's have our relationships in the two or three hours that we're in the gym. And then 
we'll see you tomorrow. Now, part of that also was just levels of communication. You know, cell phones didn't exist back then and texting didn't exist back then. And, you know, so we're a lot more connected now. But the shift over the last couple of years has been if I want to push our kids and I want to grind them, I want to get them out of their comfort zones. I have to have relationships with them so that there's this base level of trust and respect in both directions that they know the reason why I'm pushing them right now is to make them better and to make the team better. And I know that they're struggling with this right now, but they do want to get better. So how, how much New York Matt can come out while we're at practice, but Ever since I really started focusing on that, I've, I think I've become a better coach. I've been a happier coach, most certainly. I feel like I have really good relationships with our kids. They come over to the house. I teach them how to change flat tires. You know, we joke with each other. They joke with me. I joke with them. And, and then even better, they've started now holding me accountable, you know, which I love because I don't mind the hard conversation. So if I'm not doing something right, they let me know about it sometimes angrily, which is perfectly fine with me because if I'm screwing up, I want to know about it. Uh, but because of those relationships, we can have three words that we use in our programs, open, honest, and genuine. You know, We have very open, honest, and genuine conversations as a team. We've had some people outside of our program come to our team meetings and they're in shock with what we talk about, just how blunt we are and how direct we are and whether it's positive, uh, positive feedback or negative feedback, you know, we'll have a conversation about practice and a player will go to another player. Hey, I don't think you gave a hundred percent. Here's my examples. And there's no defensiveness. There's no nothing that kid might explain. Okay. Here's why I was, I wasn't feeling great or whatever, but we don't let excuses go on in our program either. And, We've left those meetings and the conversations end fine, but we've left those meetings with those people outside of the program just kind of looking at us going, oh, wow. You know, I remember we had psychologists come talk to the team and the team had written all of these things on the whiteboard, all these superlatives. And after the team left, the sports psychologist looked at me and said, well, that's great that you guys are talking about this, the superlatives. Are you guys going to give this out you know, once a week or whatever? And I looked at her and I said, I don't know what that is. I'm sure at some point in time, the team will tell me, but that's entirely them. They have a weekly team meeting by themselves where the coaches aren't involved. And clearly they're working on this. This is something that they want to do, but I haven't been told anything about that. And the sports psychologist kind of looked at me and went, they did this entirely on their own. Yeah. No, I, I have no clue what it is. You know, I, and I'm not going to ask about it because it's their stuff. And when they're ready to tell me, they'll tell me, but you can't do that without having, a really good culture of relationships and trust. And that's what we've been building the last couple of years. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's one thing to have a coach or an outsider from the program, see what you're doing, be somewhat perplexed, but also probably impressed (laughs) with the way that you handle the program and the way that the players are accountable and everything. But I'd have to imagine it's one thing to have that and another thing for them to change their ways. And there's probably still some resistance to changing and being more culture focused versus X's and O's. What do you think some of those reasons are? Like, is it something that's really practical that could be really easy to change? Like if there's a coach listening and they're mulling around with it, but can't figure out how to get started. Do you have any advice for getting started with it all? Yeah. The biggest advice that I have is understanding that creating a culture and maintaining a culture, which is actually more important than creating it, is hard. 
And it's something that you have to do every day. So we talk about that with our players a lot. It is really easy, really, really simple to read a book and to read a quote or to put a poster up and to say these key phrases and to just regurgitate stuff that comes out. But it has to have intent and it has to have purpose behind it. So we talk about that a lot. So when we go through leadership development or we talk about cultural things, again, it's really simple to go, yes, I want that. Yes, we should do that. The hard part is maintaining it. And it is extremely difficult. And if you're going to do anything, because I, I find a lot of coaches who want to do culture stuff or want to do leadership development stuff, dive headfirst into it. And then they hit the wall of difficulty of it's just not, they want immediate feedback. They're id driven. They want it instant gratification. And when it doesn't happen instantly, they just stop. And then they complain about their culture. You have to do it every single day. And you have to remind yourselves as coaches and you have to remind your staff and you have to remind your players that, hey, remember our conversation. These are the things that we want to work on. These are the things that we have to do every single day. And currently right now, you're not doing it or we're missing out on this or we're forgetting about that. And those conversations are hard because there might be pushback from it. But that's how you maintain the culture that you want to create. I also think it's really important to have the culture created by the entire team. It should not be created by the coaches and it shouldn't be created solely by the players. It should be created by conversations with everybody so that everybody's involved. One thing that we say in our gym is a team's success and a team's failure lies 50% on the coaches and 50% on the players. Because I think a lot of time when teams win, everybody goes, the players are playing so great. And when teams lose, the coaches are being terrible. But a team's success and a team's failures are 50% both sides. And if both sides are handling their 50%, then you're probably going to be pretty good. But if only one side is handling it. So if the coaches are pushing culture, but the players aren't buying into it, or vice versa, the players have a culture that they want to have and the coaches don't really want to do it you're probably not going to be really good culturally. So uh, the biggest advice that I have is understand that it's extremely important. It is the biggest difference in our program over the last five or six years and that it is so hard <laughs> to do and to maintain, but it's worth it. Yeah, it's obviously a huge overhaul, but definitely worth it. And I love how you broke that down. So thank you. And I want to touch on the flip side of all that. Players today in the recruiting cycle, obviously it's different because it's easier or there's more ways, I should say, to communicate than there was in the past. And there's more ways to get recognition or to be visible. But as you just alluded to, there's also a different type of player that you specifically are looking to bring into your program, into your culture and play on your team. How do you go about the recruiting process now? in finding those players that fit the mold of everything that we just talked about? Yeah, another great question. Finding really good volleyball players is really easy. You know, walking into a gym and finding a kid that jumps high and hits the ball hard and is tall and is physical, th that part is simple. Anybody can do it. The next biggest part is convincing them to come to your school. But 
going back on open, honest, and genuine, when we get to the point where we're on the phone with a recruit or they're on campus or we're talking to their club coach or their club director or their high school coach, I'm extremely blunt. For me, especially where we are, if I were at Nebraska, one of the top programs in the country, Stanford, who just won our national championship, you know, on any given year, they might be recruiting five kids across the country, right? They're, they're recruiting the five best kids in the country. Our pool's significantly bigger than that. So there are a lot of players out there that make us better. And then what I always go back to is in the latest participation numbers, there are about 430,000 girls playing high school volleyball currently right now in the country. And so if you divide that by four, one by each class, you've got about 107,000 kids in each class that we're recruiting. My thing is, is that if you don't fit the mold, there's 107,000 other kids that I can go after, right? So for us, when we're in the recruiting process and we're talking to recruits, we're talking to their parents, we're talking to their coaches, we tell them, listen, this is specifically what we're looking for. This is what our program is like. This is how we handle things. Like for us, everything is numbers based. You're statted every day. So it's a, a freshman can beat out a senior, you know, and then that kid's on the court. Nothing is based on seniority. Everything is based on numbers because our sport is very numbers oriented. Moneyball is my Bible. I thought that movie was fantastic. I read that book years before that movie came out. And just to break everything down analytically for me and making it black and white just made everything so simple. So our players know that. So if we're recruiting a kid who just wants everything handed to her or doesn't want to work all that hard or has never been told no, has never been asked to work hard, it's just been given to them, they're not going to survive in our program because they're going to be probably player number 17 on the, on the ranking sheet every day. And we tell that to coaches and we tell that to players. When they, Especially when they get to campus, I look at them and go, you need to understand that I'm a pretty blunt New Yorker and I give blunt feedback. Now, I have to teach you. Don't get me wrong. But if you're somebody who wants everything just handed and not earned, this is not the program for you. And I'm sure we've lost recruits because of that, which is perfectly fine with me. But we've gotten the kids that made us better. We can also see that in the recruiting process, too. I mean, besides the athleticism and, and volleyball skill that we look at, we watch and see how you react to being coached. So if a coach is correcting you or telling you in the middle of a match and you're looking right at him or her and you're nodding your head and you're getting it, and then even better, you make that change on the next play, you know, you're going to get marked down on our list. But if you're, you roll your eyes, you turn your back to your coach, you look at a teammate give a little smirk or whatever you're getting crossed off of our list and i don't think a lot of players understand that's how much we look at that stuff because again for me there's a hundred thousand hundred and seven thousand other players i can go and recruit so it, it's pretty quick for you to get off of our list if you don't handle being coached correctly yeah and i think that's just a really important note to make for any high school athlete for any sport that a coach may be looking for their skills, obviously, but they're probably looking just as importantly for their attitude. behavior yeah. and yeah, their attitude. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I would, you know, encourage any high school athlete to, I mean, not put on a fake attitude or anything like that, but it's, it's something that not only do you have to be able to be able to work as a team and be able to buy into a team culture in athletics and at the collegiate level and maybe beyond depending on what your sport is, but when you get into the business world and you get into the real world and right. things like that, 
you have to be able to work together with people. You have to be able right. to have a good attitude towards things that probably aren't going to always make you happy. Otherwise, right. you're just not going to survive. So, right. yeah. Some of the best texts or messages that I get are from players that I've coached who have graduated. And they'll send me a message of, hey, I just want to say thanks because I'm in the work world now and my coworkers are complaining about certain things. And I just look at them and go, this is nothing compared to what being a division one or any college athlete, you know, regardless of sport, regardless of division, this, what we're, what you're complaining about right now is nothing compared to being a college athlete, you know, and the things that I had to do every single day, we were expected to perform every day in practice. Like if you're making five errors in a row, it's not okay. It's, you have to change it. People who don't experience that go into a workforce that they think they can make five, six, seven mistakes and that it's all right. I'll just get that. You know, and those people are getting fired because Mm -hmm. the workforce is the same thing. Hey, I'll just, I'll just hire somebody else who will work harder than you. So yeah, those are some of the best messages that I get from former players of just, Hey, thanks for pushing me and making me the person that I am. That's better than any championship or trophy or anything like that, that we can win here is getting those messages. Yeah. That's so cool. Very gratifying and awesome to hear. And I think that what you just said really helps us segue to the learning and development portion of our conversation. And we talk about all the seven pillars of dynamic leadership in my company and on this podcast. And one of the pillars that you had identified as something that really stood out to you was grit. And it seems like you were just starting to get onto the cusp of really diving deep into grit and what that means to you. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, quite simply, the world is hard. <laughs> you just deal with it. And again, that's my blunt New York self. <laughs> the Anybody who is brought up to think that everything is easy, they're being lied to. You know? And I'm not saying that the world is this nasty place and it's disgusting, but the world is hard. To be good at anything or to be great at anything is hard. It does not come easy to anybody. I just think, and thankfully, I think it's kind of tapering off, starting to taper off. But we went through this good number of year period where people just thought things should be handed to them and not earned. And and I don't know if it's my upbringing. My dad worked for UPS for over 30 plus years. And he was the typical ladder job. You know, he started in the warehouse and then became middle management, then became upper management. And then, you know, when he retired, he was an executive for UPS. But you don't see that often anymore. You don't see that job progression anymore. But honestly, except for in coaching, right? You don't see as many people as back in my father's day work from the ground up. They graduate college and they expect to be upper management right away. And when they're not, they're upset. You know, what do you mean I have to start here and work up? You know, it's so it's just this mentality of, the work ethic and the grit and having to fight for the things that you want to do. And I think that is lacking in a, in a lot of student athletes and especially at the high school level coming in, because you have these high school coaches that don't enforce that grit. And it's just, Oh, my seniors are going to play and my seniors are going to be captains and my seniors are going to do this. Meanwhile, I might be in the gym and there's this sophomore who is working her tail off and is a great player and, goes after everything and I'm watching two seniors kind of walk through things and not go hard or whatever. And I would ask that coach, Hey, by the way, well, how come that sophomore's not playing? 
well, because she's a sophomore. And I go, but she's better than that kid. <laughs> well, but she's a senior. Uh, yeah, and? Because what's funny is that a lot of those coaches also then will ask us college, you know, hey, how do I get better? I'm like, well, you play this kid, and you make this kid have to learn unless you work hard every single day, you're not going to be on the court. And a lot of times they don't want to teach those lessons. So then you get kids that don't have grit. But I think it's the number one determining factor in anybody's success, regardless of whether or not you're an athlete or not. If you're a musician, grit. If you're an artist, grit. If you're going into the corporate world, grit. It's how hard are you going to work and how well are you going to deal with adversity is – you know, I don't have math to it, but it's, it's got to be directly correlated to how successful you're going to be. Absolutely. And I think if another good book uh, you might want to check out if you haven't already is by Angela Duckworth. It's called Grit. And Great. she oh, yeah. yeah, and she does uh, some really great correlations that have some numbers and percentages to back up. Like you said, it doesn't matter what industry. It's right. if yeah. you are working hard, you're going to be successful more often than not and probably outdo your peers and there's a difference between working hard and i don't know how to phrase it but there's a lot of people who give off the impression that they work hard sure right but they're really not working hard at all Mm -hmm. they're working really hard at making that impression but they're not working hard at what they're supposed to be doing and it's usually those understated players in the athletic world it's those understated players who come in every single day we have a rising senior DS, who I remember when we were recruiting her, she's from here, from Boone, from Watauga High School, and wanted to be a part of our team. And we told her, we love you. We love your family. You're an awesome person. You're fantastic. We absolutely positively want you to be a part of our team. Just understand that you probably aren't going to play much. Just get that, you know, just, just because of your experience level and who we already have on the roster. And, and she just looked at us and went... I know. I get it. I'm going to have to come in and work hard every day. I just think it would be really cool to wear the jersey of the school, the university that's in my town. And that sold me completely. Not that I needed to be sold, but that sold me completely and utterly on her as a person. And then she ended up being a starter for us for the last three years because she came in and went, okay, I'm already at a disadvantage just because of my, my experience and and where I've played and stuff like that. So I have to work doubly hard to be a good player so that I can eventually get on the court. And she's been on the court her freshman, sophomore, and junior years, and she'll be on the court her senior year coming up this fall. And it's completely and utterly related to how hard she comes in and works and how coachable she is. She threw out her background. She threw out her experience. She threw out any expectations that she had, and she just went, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to learn. I'm going to watch film. I'm going to be coachable. I'm going to get stronger in the weight room. And lo and behold, the kid who was told probably would never play has ended up being a three-year starter for us. That's the example of grit that I'm talking about. And a completely understated player. If you came to a match, she's a DS. There's not a lot of wow factor in what Sydney does. She just does her job really, really well and has earned it completely with how hard she worked. I love that story. And I really like how you threw in the caveat that she was coachable because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you know this, it doesn't matter how hard you work. If you're not doing the things that coaches or in the business world, managers are asking you to do, it doesn't matter. You're not going to make that advancement if you're not doing the right things. 
Exactly. Yeah, very cool. Awesome story. Another thing that I like to ask my guests in this portion of the conversation, you mentioned Moneyball, which is a Bible of yours. It's also a really big influential book of mine as well, especially being analytical and liking those different numbers and things like that. But what other ways do you learn? Do you get your personal development? Some other books maybe that you've read in the past or podcasts that you listen to? Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, I'm just now starting the whole book thing. I've, I've been an avid reader my entire life, but it was always, if I was going to read, I was going to read fiction. I was never a, that much of a nonfiction guy, like biographies and things like that. Now that I'm older, I'm starting to get more leadership development, especially learning about this generation. So Tim Elmore from a couple of years ago when he was talking about IY. And when I realized, wow, these kids are just so different than anything that I'm used to, rather than complaining about them, I have to learn about them. And so I remember, and of course, now the title is escaping me, but he had a book several years ago called IY, the IY generation. And it was basically how to teach them, learn, you know, learn from them, etc. So that's the only book of his that I've read, but I'm all over his social media and we do, he has a branch off of what his work called Habitudes and we do that within the department. Uh, And the reason why I like that is because they're really easy snippet things, metaphors, analogies, movie clips that relate directly to certain things. One of the best books that I read, which kind of changed everything that I did in my program, this might have been about 10 years ago or so, uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, our assistant men's basketball coach at the time. We had a year where we were just struggling big time. And he actually was talking to, I think he was talking to my wife, Roxanne, at a match. And he wrote down the name of the book and he goes, have Matt read this because I think it would really help. That was kind of my first book to break me out of the whole fiction thing because I'm a huge Stephen King fan and science fiction and fantasy and horror. And and I went, okay, I'll read that. And I remember driving up to Blacksburg for Thanksgiving and it's about a two and a half hour drive. And I cranked out the entire book in that drive while Roxanne was driving up. And if you haven't read the five dysfunctions of the team, it is fantastic. And it's written with the example of a corporate environment, but it is so applicable to sports and anything quite honestly. And then so from there, I got the workbook. So I have this big four-inch binder of the workbook of the five dysfunctions of a team, which now walks you through how to handle each dysfunction. And the, the base dysfunction is lack of trust. And we didn't have any of that way back then. And if you have lack of trust, then you've got all the other four. So you go through the workbook with your group. And you start building the trust. And then from there, you can talk about accountability and you can talk about results and you can talk about conflict, which was another big one. And that was my first foray and probably the biggest impact of we've got to work on these things in order to to develop a winning culture. In terms of other social media stuff, I follow uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's an entrepreneur, but I just probably because he's a New Yorker and he curses a lot and but he's extremely direct in his feedback and it's just such simple stuff that it's great rather than i'm not a big analogies person there are some great books out there john gordon has great stuff and joshua metcalf has great stuff and i'm more 
direct and give me a plan kind of person rather than tell me a story. So that's why uh, all of Jeff Jansen's stuff I like because it's, I'm going to talk about these things, but then I'm going to give you this worksheet to do. But then that works with my brain a whole lot better than reading analogies and parables. But all of that stuff is great. And I'm glad that I kind of broke my wall of just reading fiction. I just need to create my library and get out of it a little bit more. But Five Dysfunctions of a Team was a big one. Talent Code is another one. I'm trying. To, I'm turning around in my office right now to see what I have on my shelf because I, I read them so long ago. Oh, a big one that I read a long time ago, Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson. I thought that was just a great way to approach coaching a completely different way than anybody else is doing because Phil Jackson's brain is so different than everybody else's. And then somebody just handed me, it's in my backpack, where is it? The Culture Code, which I have heard is really, really good. I have not read it yet, so I'm excited to get it that one. Awesome. Yeah. Some great books that I've read myself or at least heard about. And I think those are awesome recommendations just in general. If anybody is listening, regardless of what you're in, but especially if you're coaching, five dysfunctions of a team, find it, read it. It's fantastic. Beautiful. And I'm going to put all of those books, links to that in the show notes. So it's super easy for people to hop on Amazon or Barnes Noble, whatever, or if they want to go to their local library and just rent it out for a little while. But that's really great information. And my last question before we let you get going, or we're, we're actually going to have two questions here, but okay. I always like to ask my guests, there's a lot of influential people in your life, and you've talked about a good number of them throughout our conversation today. But I always like to give them an opportunity to shout out one person who they consider to be a dynamic leader in their own life and people that display a lot of the things that we talked about today. So is there one person in particular that you've thought of that you want to shout out today? Yeah, my wife, that might be kind of a weird thing because she's not out there, but she has dealt with me being a coach. She has raised two children when I was rarely home. We've been a single income. You know, she stayed home and raised the kids. So we've been going and coaches don't make all that much money. So from the whole beginning of making slightly over zero dollars in the beginning of my coaching career, which I always remind her that she told me I should do. So whenever she <laughs> kind of sneers her nose at me or asks me if I'm going away again, or you know, I have to remind her that she's the one that suggested that I get into coaching. But she raised, you know, and I know I was involved too, So, but significantly more input from her. Because I was on the road, especially in my six years at Virginia, where my son was born my first August at Virginia. And then we were nine and six when we left Virginia. So really key developmental times. But I was gone all the time because I was a recruiting coordinator for a Power 5 school. So I was gone a lot. She has done it with grace and she has done an amazing job. And now I have a soon-to-be 22-year-old and soon to be 18 year old and a college graduate and a high school graduate in the next two months, two completely and utterly independent kids who have carved their own paths. We haven't, we were not the lawnmower parents. We are not the helicopter parents. And I feel like we selfishly and completely biased opinion. I feel like we've raised two pretty amazing kids and she was a huge part of it. And you, and you can't do that without basically every single pillar that you talk about in terms of leadership development, you know? And so, yeah, it's completely and utterly my wife, Roxanne. 
from a career perspective, it would be Morris Stouter, who is my high school coach, going all the way back to the mid eighties, because she is the reason I'm sitting in this chair right now. I wish going back in my career, I wish that I had asked for and found some more mentors. You know, I have really good relationships amongst the coaching world, but if I look back in time, I don't have a ton of mentors, and that's my fault for not asking for it. But if she were still alive today, it would be her because she got me into this profession, and I'm loving every minute of it. Yeah, those are awesome shout outs, and I don't think it can be understated how important it. I don't really think it matters what position or what type of profession you're in. If you have that support system at home, whether it's a significant oh, other, your family in general. So it's not surprising to me that you have success, you have happiness, and that comes a lot of it comes because of the relationship that you've built with your wife over these years. So that's really cool to hear. Before we let you go, I want to give you an opportunity. I know we've talked quite a bit about the volleyball program today and you have so many cool, exciting things happening. And I think finally some things have slowed down a little bit for your schedule so you yeah. can breathe. <laughs> but yeah, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the program and some exciting things that you have upcoming. Yeah, so we finished off a great year. Uh, we went 22-9 and nine this year. We won the East Division in the Sun Belt and we lost in the championship match to Texas State, who was better than us. I can admit that they were just a better team, but had a, it had an amazing year. On top of that, the kids did a, a 3.58 GPA in the fall. So getting it done on the court and getting it done in the classroom. I'm, I'm genuinely surrounded by one of the best groups I've ever been around. And what makes it even better for me, and not that I talk about the past a ton, I try not to, but two seasons ago, we had four wins. So we went from four wins, and a lot of that, we had a bunch of injuries that year, but still four wins to 22 wins in the span of two years uh, is a pretty amazing feat. Uh, we just finished a, a great spring. We graduate four players that are key. Well, everybody's key. A anytime you graduate anybody, it's a key loss, but graduate four this year. Uh, so we had some uh, new positions coming in in the, in the spring, figuring out some stuff. We're playing around with a, a new offense, just trying to speed it up a little bit. Finished up a great spring, called it a spring this week, ended really happy, excited to get going in the fall. Uh, we'll get going again August 7th, 7th I think. Uh, with preseason, and we're looking forward to another good year. I think we lost a couple of steps just from the people that have graduated, but that's every year. With the work that we put in the spring, I'm looking forward to another successful year. And, and again, just genuinely one of the best groups I've ever been around. So I know when we get back in the gym in August, we'll pick right up. Very cool. A lot of things to look forward to, like you said, in that August 7th date, I'm sure will come a lot quicker than anyone thinks. <laughs> yes. But if there, uh, if there's anyone, Matt, that wants to get in touch with you, maybe they enjoyed the conversation want, and they're an, they're an aspiring coach, excuse me, or they want to learn more about culture. Is there a way they can get in touch with you? Yeah. You can shoot me an email is the best way to get a hold of me. So that's, uh, jennifermj at appstate.edu if uh, I couldn't pronounce it well enough on, on Skype then you can just jump to appstatesports.com and you can find my email on the uh, on the staff directory absolutely welcome I love these conversations the, I don't know if you've done it Colin but uh, one thing that I've done the last two years is the one word thing pick mm -hmm. a word for your year yes and I did it last year and it was last year was relax and we won 22 matches, so I'm going to try to remember that over and over again. This year, my 2019 word is connect. 
I wanted to connect with more people. I wanted to connect with my players. I wanted to, uh, even though I have good relationships, I wanted to have stronger relationships with my players. But another reason for the connect was I wanted to connect with more people. So I love these conversations. I welcome them at any turn. Uh, clearly, if anybody is up in Boone and on campus or, again, shameless plug at our matches in the fall, our schedule will be up on AppStateSports.com as well. But please, I, I welcome these conversations. And I always like helping coaches get better. I don't have all the answers, but I have a lot of answers that other people who are better than me have told me. And really, it's all about the application of it. But I love having these conversations. So yeah, feel free. Anybody who wants to get in touch with me, I welcome it. Yeah, so cool. And we do, my wife and I, we do those words of the year and her word this year is actually connection too. So I'll have yeah. to tell her that you guys have the commonality there, but this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking time and telling us about not only your experiences growing up, but especially about the coaching and giving us insider look into what that actually looks like and some of the challenges and a lot of the fun that you get to experience as well. And I think it's been an awesome conversation and can't thank you enough for your time today, Matt. No, thanks for having me. This has been great. Thanks again to Matt for hopping on the podcast. What a great conversation, learning about the ins and outs of collegiate coaching. We know Matt's super busy with recruiting in the off season and getting ready for another amazing season at App State this year with the women's volleyball team. So can't thank him enough for taking time out of his schedule to come on the pod and share everything that he did. I want to thank my sponsor, Sweat with Stods. Please visit www.sweatwithstods.com and figure out what she can do for your fitness future. Thanks as always to you, the listeners, for taking time out of your busy day to listen to the podcast. We are back next week with another guest, another coach, another teacher. So stay tuned for that.